0: The following is a sermon preached at the First Presbyterian Church of Jackson, Mississippi. We are progressing our way through the Book of Romans in a bit of a, a bit of a crash course. I know you're drinking from the fire hose, really. It's a lot to take in. I hope you found some benefit, though, in seeing, uh, seeing the big picture as we work our way through the whole of Paul's letter. Um, we are beginning... Uh, Really, last Lord's Day evening, we began the last major section of the letter, the fifth section of the letter, which runs from chapter 12 through chapter 15. Chapter 16 is Paul's final uh, greetings. So 12 through 15 is the the last major component of the letter, which uh, deals with life in the church before the watching world. Life in the church before the watching world, practical Christian living among the people of God and out in the world that God has made. Paul began uh, chapter 12 by exhorting us, do you remember, by the mercies of God or in view of God's mercies. And for the 11 chapters prior to that, he enumerated the mercies of God in the gospel the provision of the righteousness of Christ to be received by faith alone, the grace of sanctification, of being transformed by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the plan and purpose of God to bring that gospel to the ends of the earth, to reach Jews and Gentiles in every corner of the world. And now he says, given these manifold mercies, since God has piled mercy upon mercy for us in Jesus Christ, therefore, live like this. In view of God's mercies, by the mercies of God, here is how I wish you to live. Here's how we ought to live. you remember chapter 12 concluded with a call in verses 9 through 21 to love one another in the church and to love our neighbors outside of the church. And that call to neighbor love continues here in chapter 13 as well. If you look at Romans 13, our passage tonight with me, please. In verses 1 through 7, there is a famous and important section dealing with civil government And then in verses 8 through 14, Paul shows us how love for neighbor fulfills the second half of the Ten Commandments. Chapter 13 brings together three ideas, which in combination really help to direct Christian duty. So three ideas which in combination help to direct Christian duty. There's the principle of love, love fulfills God's law, love for neighbor, the principle of authority, we are to bow before the authority of God in his law, and those secondary authorities that God has ordained to care for us in civil society. So the principle of love, the principle of authority, and the need of our neighbor We are to care for our neighbors. Understanding those three principles direct how we live in the world as the people of God. The principle of love, the principle of authority, and the need of our neighbor. Love, we've already noticed, actually surrounds this chapter. Love is the conclusion of chapter 12 and the conclusion of chapter 13. The issue of authority is also equally clear, spelled out in 1 through 7, where Paul addresses God ordained civil governments. And authority is equally clear in 8 through 13, where Paul talks about the moral law of God. And in the background, in both the first and second half of this chapter, civil government and God's law, is the primary issue of how Christians should love and care for their neighbors. So we can summarize uh, the teaching of these two sections of Romans 13 really very simply in two words. In 1 through 7, Paul issues a call to submit with some caveats and qualifications, as we'll see. But the clear teaching of Scripture is that Christians living in the world are to submit For conscience sake, to the civil authority. Submit. Then, secondly, 8 through 13, the word is fulfill. We are to fulfill the law of God by loving our neighbour. So, submit, 1 through 7, and fulfill, 8 through 13. Before we look at each of those, let's bow our heads and pray. And then we'll read the passage together. Let us all pray. Father, uh, your word is now spread before us and our lives are equally open to your gaze. And we ask you, please, by the work of the Holy Spirit, to take your word and match it to the needs of our hearts, to convince and rebuke and exhort, correct, and train us in righteousness that we may be complete, equipped for every good work. For the honor and glory of your name. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans 13 at verse 1. This is the word of God. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed, owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Amen. As Christians, we are citizens of two worlds at once. We live in this world, of course. We participate in its institutions, in its culture. But we're also citizens of another world, our true home the redemptive kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the values of his kingdom are to govern our thinking and our behavior as we function as citizens of the kingdom of this world. Now, our elected officials and the institutions of civil government that they lead are met, let's face it, with widespread cynicism, distrust, and even contempt in our particular cultural moment, aren't they? Turn on the network news on any channel from any perspective, it doesn't take long to find editorializing that drips with disdain for the other side. Uh, A 2023 Pew Research poll found that 65% of Americans feel exhausted when thinking about politics, and 55% say they feel angry. Just 16% say they trust the federal government most of the time, which puts the issue of trust in government in the American population at its lowest point in 70 years. When asked to sum up their feelings about politics, only 2% of respondents used positive words. 79% used words like divisive and corrupt. 86% said, quote, Republicans and Democrats are more focused on fighting each other than on solving problems. The place of government and of political life in general has fallen on hard times in the thought of most average Americans today. But can we as Christians comfortably go along with those trends? Are we free to be as cynical? and contemptuous of government and its institutions as the world around us. How ought citizens of the kingdom of redemption in Jesus Christ to behave while we live in the kingdoms of this world? Let's look at chapter 13, one through seven, please. And the first word that sums up Paul's teaching submit. Paul calls us to submit to God-ordained civil governments. You'll notice Paul gives us his principle in verse 1. He repeats it in slightly different form again in verse 5. Verse 1, here's his principle. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Verses 2 through 4 gives us some reasons and some implications from that. Then he repeats his principle again in verse 5. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. And again, in 6 and 7, he gives us some reasons and implications. So he states his principle, verse 1, reasons and implications 2 through 4. His principle again in verse 5, and reasons and implications in 6 and 7. The basic principle is not ambiguous or difficult to understand, is it? Christians are to be subject to governmental authority because it has been ordained by God and its authority derives from God. The first set of implications from that principle are teased out in verses 2 through 4. Look there, please. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgments. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval. For he's God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. To resist the lawful authority given to the civil government in all its branches and agents, is to disobey the Lord, Paul is saying. Now, there are some important qualifications and caveats, and we'll come to those in due course. But the basic point that Paul wants to emphasize for the Roman Christians is the duty of respectful submission to civil authority. To reject it, Verse two is to incur judgment. The civil authority, did you see, twice over, is actually called God's servant. Verse four, the word for servant, you may know is the word diakonos. It's sometimes translated elsewhere in the New Testament as deacon, sometimes even as minister. Jesus is even described as the diakonos, the servant of God. And so Paul gives us here, doesn't he, a very high view of the dignity and validity of the office of the civil magistrates. To work for the government in any of its branches or agencies or services at any level, local, regional, or national, according to Paul's teaching here, is a noble vocation in which a Christian may legitimately and profitably serve To the glory of God. The civil magistrate is God's servant and uh, his diaconos, his minister for our good. Now, bear in mind here as we read this section of, of the letter, Paul is not talking about an idealized fantasy government functioning in a perfect, make believe world. He isn't talking about the way things ought to be but never will be until Jesus actually returns. No, Paul is talking here in Romans 13 about the notoriously corrupt and abusive Roman imperial government system. He's talking about Pontius Pilate and Herod and Festus and Agrippa. Just a few years before Paul wrote Romans, Claudius was the emperor in Rome at the time, He expelled all the Jews. Actually, his target was the church because they were stirring up the population in the name of someone called Crestus, probably a, a, a distortion, a corruption of the name Christ. Christians were being targeted and persecuted by the imperial power. In Acts 18, Priscilla and Aquila meet with Paul in Corinth because they've been expelled from Rome. Uh, And by the time Paul is back in Corinth uh, a few years later, uh, Claudius has died, and Nero, who is a monstrous, immoral, debauched, and tyrannical figure in history, Nero is now on the throne. So when Paul wrote Romans 13, he's talking about Nero. He's not talking about some ideal Christian government. He's saying Nero is God's servant for our good. He's saying that while the checks and balances and all the healthy liberties of good government is the goal of the civil power, even tyrants like Nero and even corrupt and perverse local governors that Rome installed all over the empire even they are better for us because they at least maintain structures and a general order in society. That is better than pure anarchy. It is a gift of what we sometimes call common grace, not saving, but common, common to everyone. But it is a gift of grace nonetheless from the hand of God that we have civil governments that we have law enforcement, that we have the rule of law, even when our courts sometimes or often fail us, even when justice is subverted, even when corruption festers in high office, even when the political agendas of those who make our laws run in clear opposition to the moral law of God, Paul is saying, even then, we are to bless God for civil authority, and to render to those authorities all due honor. And do notice the inference that Paul draws from all of that in uh, verses 4 and 5. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. He is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Since the civil magistrate is God's servant, when he bears the sword, and the sword there, is a symbol of the power of legal sanction and punishments, when he bears the sword, he does it as the executor of the wrath of God. Do you remember at the end of the previous chapter, Paul told the Romans not to take vengeance, but to leave it to the wrath of God? Chapter 12, verse 19. Here now, he tells them, this side of the final judgment, when Jesus comes to settle all accounts, this side of the final judgment, the wrath of God, is often displayed in the world through the earthly judgments of the civil power. Verse 5, as we said, repeats the basic point, the basic principle Uh, once again, although notice Paul says obedience to the civil power is not just about avoiding judgments, Christians are to give obedience to the civil power for conscience' sake. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. So listen, honoring the civil government is a Christian duty we owe to God. We are conscience-bound as followers of Jesus Christ to do it. We are not law-abiding citizens, if we are law-abiding citizens, merely because we want thereby to avoid civil penalty. Christians are to be law-abiding citizens of this world because we live already every day as citizens of the world to come. It is a matter of conscience, of having a clean conscience under God. And in verses 6 and 7, Paul gets very concrete and specific, doesn't he? As he teases out some further implications of all of this. Look at verses 6 and 7. For because of this, you also pay taxes. Everyone's favorite word when they come to church. It's what you want to hear about, right? You come to hear about taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God. There's that word again. Attending to this very thing, pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. Again, remember the context. Paul isn't writing to Christians living in utopia. He's writing to Christians living in Rome. Likely there were some in Rome receiving Paul's letter who were ready to reject the authority of their pagan leaders. Claudius, remember, had expelled them only a few years earlier. Now Nero is a tyrant and a monster. Maybe maybe we should withhold our taxes. They are exorbitant, excessive, unjust, after all. They're being misspent, certainly. Those who collect them are running a protection racket skimming a little extra for themselves off the top. But no, Paul says, pay your taxes. And in this, isn't he echoing the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ, Mark chapter 12. Actually, many scholars think that Paul in verse 7 in particular is explicitly echoing Jesus' teaching in Mark 12. Do you remember the scene in Mark chapter 12? His opponents ask Jesus, is it lawful? to pay taxes to Caesar or not. Should we pay them or should we not? If we're really loyal citizens of the kingdom of God, surely we ought to resist someone as monstrous and wicked and pagan as Caesar and not pay taxes to him, since his taxes, they're unjust. They're, They're a dreadful burden on God's people. Should we pay taxes or not? But knowing their hypocrisy, Jesus said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Taxes, revenue, respect, honor, Paul says, are owed to the civil magistrate. So render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. If you owe good order, taxes, obligations, honorable speech, due respect, you ought to pay it, and you do, so you must. That's Paul's point. Do you resent your government? Do you? Do you resent the taxes required of you? Do you speak ill of your president, your mayor, your elected officials? What ill will do you harbor and what cynicism have you allowed to fester in your heart about the agents of government and law? in our land, about the police, about electoral law, about the political process, about our elected officials. Honor and respect are owed, along with taxes and revenue, Paul says. Now, there are some obvious caveats and qualifications. What if, what if the civil, gov- civil government really is terrible? Is there no limit to their power? Are there no qualifications to the submission I'm supposed to owe them as a Christian? Am I blindly to obey any and all the dictates of the civil power, no matter what they may be? Think about the defense that uh, Nazis at the Nuremberg trials often made, right? That's what they said. I, I was only taking orders. I wasn't allowed to disobey. And that's why I did the dreadful things that I did. Are we required always to do what we're told under any circumstance, no matter what? Jesus said to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. But what about when the things that are Caesar's contradict and conflict with the things that are God's? Acts chapter 4 And Acts chapter 5 provide us with a really helpful case study of what to do in those circumstances. Acts chapter 4 at verse 18. Again, you'll remember the situation. The Jewish ruling council have arrested Peter and John for preaching the gospel. They called them, Luke says, and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. So here's the civil power forbidding the preaching of the gospel by the apostle Peter and John. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Then there's a prayer meeting. They're all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. They disobeyed. They disobeyed the command of the civil power. Don't you preach anymore in Jesus' name. They were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they continued to speak the Word of God boldly. Again, uh, in chapter 5, the apostles are arrested. They're told to stop preaching Christ. Peter replies, we must obey God rather than men. The church has been commanded to preach the gospel. If the civil authority forbade the preaching of the biblical gospel, as it did in the Apostles' day, it often does still and has done in almost every decade of human history since the Apostles, somewhere around the world. Under those circumstances, the church must respectfully, peaceably, but boldly and flatly refuse to submit to human authority because we must submit to the ultimate and final authority of Almighty God. I have a dear friend who was expelled a few weeks ago from a closed country in Asia where the free exercise of religion is forbidden. He runs an underground seminary there, training Reformed pastors to plant Presbyterian churches illegal Presbyterian churches. His wife and children are still there. He himself is a U.S. citizen, and although he is ethnically from that country, and has since been in the States after his expulsion. Last week, however, he flew back in an attempt, after having been out of the country for some time, to regain entry. But when he got to the airport in country, he was stopped by the authorities. And so he remained where he was for a few days. There is a nearby land border, and he is now trying to walk across the border in order to return to the churches so that he can be reunited with his family and continue to preach the gospel and train the pastors. We must obey God rather than men you may not speak about Jesus is a command you can never obey. One other question, though, I think is worth asking before we move on to the second half of the chapter. If Christians are required to submit to the civil power, even ungodly and tyrannical civil power like Nero, for example, is there ever a place for the citizens of a country to overthrow the existing civil power and replace it with one that better serves their liberties. Should I preach on Romans 13, on the Sunday nearest Independence Day, as a reminder to you all that you should still be citizens of His Majesty King Charles? Before you boo, you might want to read Romans 13 carefully. The Protestant Reformers actually gave... Uh, Two answers to that question. The first you might not like. The first answer they gave is to say to Christians suffering under tyranny, to commit your case to God, submit and suffer. God topples princes. The rise and fall of nations is in his hand. So listen to John Calvin, quote, however the deeds of men are judged in themselves, still the Lord accomplishes his work through them alike. When he broke the bloody scepters of arrogant kings and when he overturned intolerable governments, let the princes hear and be afraid. But he adds, we must be very careful not to despise or violate that authority of magistrates which God has established by the weightiest decrees, even though it may reside with the most unworthy men who defile it as much as they can with their own wickedness. For if the correction of unbridled despotism is the Lord's to avenge, let us not at once think that it is entrusted to us, to whom no command has been given, except to obey and suffer." Trust the providence of God. Make your appeal to the Lord who reigns, to whom civil authority must give an account. Submit and suffer. That's their first answer. It's not their only answer, however. Uh, They developed another answer, along with the first. It's a position known as the doctrine of the lesser magistrate. And it's a way to ensure that in those circumstances which do arise where a government must be overthrown because it has become wholly corrupt, tyrannical, and wicked, it's a way to ensure that even in that circumstance, the teaching of Romans 13 continues to be honored by Christian people. They said that when the civil power becomes wholly corrupted, think about the Nazi regime again in Germany murdering six million Jews. In a case like that, when regime change needs to take place, even then, they said, it should not take place by mob rule. Mere rioting by the mass of ordinary folk is the enemy of the spirit of Romans 13. Let the reader understand. No, the reformer said, the reformer said it is the duty of the next subordinate magistrate under those at the top of the political ladder acting as the conscientious representatives of the rights and liberties of the people to oppose those in higher office and ensure a lawful and peaceable transition. Let me quote Calvin again, talking about the quiet suffering and submission of ordinary people, he said, quote, I am speaking all the while of private individuals. But if there are now any magistrates of the people appointed to restrain the willfulness of kings, I am so far from forbidding them to withstand the fierce licentiousness of kings that if they wink at kings who violently fall upon and assault the lowly common folk, I declare that their dissimulation involves nefarious perfidy. By the way, if you're going to curse somebody out, that's a great line. <laughs> nefarious perfidy. I don't know what it means, but there we go. Uh, uh, they, dis- listen, they, dishonor- they dishonestly betray the freedom of the people of which they know they've been appointed protectors at God's ordinance. The, the, the lesser magistrate under the king The lesser magistrate, too, along with the king, has been appointed as God's servant for our good. And if the king overthrows his responsibility for our good, it is the next uh, authority down, it is their responsibility to protect the people and limit the power of those in power above them, to uphold the liberties of the people. In a modern democratic republic like ours, We have systems, right, by which citizens may choose their leaders, express their dissent, protest injustice, and campaign freely against evil. And we should make use of all our civil privileges with the deepest gratitude to God for them. But as we do, let's take great care as we express our political opinions As we engage in questions of public policy, locally or nationally, let's take great care that we express respect and honor for the officers of the state. If we cannot always do it for the person who holds the office, at least for the office itself. Romans 13 is not advice, it's not a set of ideals, a set of best practices to which we should aspire one day to arrive. It is the command of God. One must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but for the sake of conscience. Pay to all what is owed them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. So that's the first word that sums up Paul's teaching here. Submission. The second word is fulfillment. Look now at verses 8 through 13. Paul turns to loving our neighbor more explicitly. At first, that may seem a bit like a a shift of direction. It's not really. Remember, Paul has been talking about loving one another at the end of chapter 12, and he's still talking about loving one another here in chapter 13. There's a sense in which he was talking about it even in his treatment of civil government. He's still talking about loving neighbor. Respect and honor for those who God has appointed in the civil power is a form of neighbor love. But here in verse eight, beginning in verse eight, he's making that much more explicit. The the motive force that animates Christian behavior in society is love. It is love to God expressed in love for neighbor. By the way, when he says in verse 8, owe no one anything except to love each other, that doesn't mean that contracting financial debt or taking out loans is always wrong. That's not what he's saying. It may be imprudent. That is a matter for your own conscience and judgment. But that's just not what he's talking about here. This verse doesn't mean don't take out a loan it means we are to make sure no debt that we may contract whether social or financial no debt remains outstanding but we are to understand that the only debt we can never repay is the it, it, ever repay in full is the debt of love we will always always be under obligation to love your love is not a favor that you bestow upon others that places them in your debt. Let me say that again. When you love other people, it's not a favor that you are doing them that places them in your debt. That's not a Christian perspective. Rather, your love is a debt you already owe to everyone because you are a child of God And you live under the rule of the law of God. And the law is fulfilled by love. Verse 8, the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. We said earlier that in verse 7, Paul likely has Jesus' words about rendering to Caesar the things that are Caesar's in the back of his mind from Mark chapter 12. I think he still has Mark chapter 12 in mind here in verses 9 and 10 as well. Mark 12, Jesus was asked, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Do you remember what he said? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second commandment, greatest commandment is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Um. The second of these two great commandments, Paul explains to us here, really is just a summary of the second half of the Ten Commandments, God's moral law. And he quotes Commandments 6 through 10. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore, he says, love fulfills the law. Jesus taught that love is the fulfillment of the whole law. Love to God, summarizing Commandments 1 through 4. Love to neighbor, Commandments 5 through 10. Love fulfills the whole law, and Paul isn't disagreeing with that here, but he is emphasizing neighbor love in this whole section. He's thinking about how we treat each other in society, and so that's where he focuses our attention when he says love fulfills the law. Christians love their neighbors. Christians love their neighbors. Doesn't mean Christians are extroverts. Christians are gregarious and full of bonhomie. Uh, it does mean that you care about the people around you and are willing to care for them to your cost. That's the duty of the moral law of God. Just as an aside, you'll sometimes come across Christians who are squeamish about God's law having any continued role in the Christian life today. They say, well, it's all a matter of the work of the Holy Spirit in the heart. God's law no longer has anything to do with us. Well, tell that to the Apostle Paul, who seems very happy pressing the law of God upon Christian consciences as a rule of life to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy God. Here's what a life of gratitude in view of God's mercies looks like. It looks like obedience to God's holy law. This is practical holiness. Love your neighbor, serve them, do them good, fulfill the law. And verses 11 through 13, if you look there very quickly, they drive that duty home very forcefully indeed. Essentially, Paul says two things more about our duty to live lives of radical, countercultural holiness that loves neighbour, that cares and speaks honourably and respectfully of those in authority over us, even when they're not honourable or respectable. In a way that is startling to the categories and faulty assumptions of the world around us. Here's how you will be a a bright light and a shining light for Jesus Christ, living a, a markedly different life. Here's how to do it. Paul says, first, you need to check the time. I don't mean because I'm going on too long, but that's what Paul is saying. Check the time. Secondly, dress appropriately. Check the time and dress appropriately. Check the time first. Look at verse 11. Besides this, you know the time. That the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. If we are to be good citizens in the world and love our neighbors well and fulfill the law, we need to remember what time it is. It is time, Paul says, to wake up. Christians with sleeping consciences do not live lives that stand out from the crowd. Is your conscience sleeping, dull, unresponsive? Are you dozing past your moral obligations, unperturbed about the needs of the lost all around you in your community, happy to join in the sneering contempt of presidents and politicians, unconcerned about the debt of love you owe to those less fortunate than yourself? Wake up, Paul is saying. The dawn of a new day is almost upon us. Jesus is coming soon. Salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The sin-darkened world won't last forever. Paul's view was was that since Jesus rose from the dead, at that moment, the last days began. We've been living in them ever since. They will continue until he returns. And he is coming at a time we least expect. No one knows the day or the hour. He will come as a thief in the night. And so Paul wants us to wake up and get ready. You ready? Live like you belong in the new day that the sunrise of Christ's return will bring. Are you ready for him to come? Are you living in a manner in which when he comes you will be happy to greet him? Living already like a citizen of the kingdom of heaven? Remember what time it is. The second thing to say is if we're to be radically countercultural in our love of neighbor and the best citizens of this world, because we are citizens of the next world, if that is to be true of us, we need to watch the time, but we also need to dress the part. Verse 12. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Put off the works of darkness. He gives us a sampling of those works, doesn't he? In verse 13, orgies and drunkenness, sexual immorality and sensuality, quarreling and jealousy. Instead, we're to put on the armor of light. That is the clothing that fits someone who dwells in the daytime of Christ's kingdom. But what does he mean when he says, put on the armor of light? Verse 14 actually helps explain. Put on then the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. That's a striking phrase, isn't it? Make no provision for the flesh. One translation, I think, says something like, don't think about how to gratify the flesh. But that's what we do, if we're honest, a lot of the time. It's not just that we're sinning. We're making provision for our sin. We're making room for the flesh. We're finding clever ways to justify, excuse, mitigate, uh, cover our sin. Our lust, our drunkenness, our quarreling, our jealousy. But it doesn't have to be that way, Paul says. Put on the armor of light. That is to say, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when you were born again, Paul has taught us earlier in Romans chapter 6, you did put on Christ once and for all, permanently. You were united to Jesus. Here, Paul is using the same image in a different way to talk about something you need to do every single day over and over and over. You get up each morning, and I bet you have a routine. Shower, get dressed, coffee, news, doom-scrolling, Paul wants you to put on Christ like you get dressed every day. Part of your routine. Can't face the day. Can't go through the day unless you put on Christ. If you're you're going to a construction site that day, you'd put a hard hat on, maybe some blue jeans, work boots. If you were attending a function at the White House, men, you'd be in a tux, black tie, ladies in a ball gown, perhaps. If you're a Christian, you need to put on Christ. He's the only fitting attire for your day every day. How do you put on the Lord Jesus? I'm about to finish. It's a number of things. First of all, you put him on by faith. Do you know the last verse of chapter 13 was the verse that brought St. Augustine to saving faith in Jesus? 386 A.D., he sees a Bible, hears voices chanting, tolle lege, take up and read. He picks it up, opens it, it falls open. at Romans 13, 13 and 14. Not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh. And he turned from his wicked worldliness and his sexual immorality and put on the Lord Jesus by faith. You put him on by faith. You put on the Lord Jesus Christ by faith, if not uh, uh, for the 100th time, maybe for you for the very first time tonight. But if you would live the life of a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, you must put on Christ. You must trust him for pardon and mercy to reconcile you to God. Secondly, you put them on by prayer. Prayer takes hold of the promises of God. Prayer is the hand that dresses us with Christ. Name your temptations before the Lord. Own your sin before the Lord. Repent of your sin before Him in prayer. Call out for mercy. Ask for grace to help you. Make no provision for the flesh. Name your Uh, temptations in particular. Work through them. Ask how to avoid uh, those occasions for sin. Ask for wisdom. Put on Christ thirdly by getting ready for war. Paul calls it the armor of light for a reason. Every day is war for you as a Christian. A battle with yourself, your thoughts, your heart. A battle with the War, a battle with the world's faulty uh, ideology and all those competing voices clamoring for your attention. Put on the armor of light. Every day you are marching into a combat zone. Put on Christ because life is not a party. It is a pitched battle. And so you need the armor of God. Go read Ephesians 6:10 through20. Pray line by line for grace to put on the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness and the shoes of the gospel and the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Fourthly, you put on Christ by diligence in public worship. Do not neglect assembling yourself together as some are in the habit of doing. Get to the place God has appointed to meet with his people. Sit under the preaching of the word every chance you get, morning and evening, Lord's Day by Lord's Day. When last were you at the Lord's table? Do you make it a point never to miss it? The Lord has promised there to meet you and nourish you. You neglect it. You neglect yourself. Put on Christ by using all the ordinances of gospel worship. Put on Christ, lastly, by committing to the community and fellowship of the people of God in the local church. The life of the church is the context for the life of a Christian. The life of the church is the context for the life of a Christian. We help each other put on Christ as we teach and admonish one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs in all wisdom. Putting on Christ is never a solo project. Paul doesn't want you to put on Christ like you put on a pair of earrings, ladies, or a new wristwatch, gentlemen. Jesus is not an accessory to your beautiful life. You put on Christ because he is like a hazmat suit in an Ebola outbreak. Sin is a deadly pathogen all around you every day. You won't make it without him. So love submits to the subordinate authority of the civil power. And love fulfills the final authority of the law of God. Love like that is urgent because the night is far gone. The day is at hand. Salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. So put on Christ. Brothers and sisters, you can love like this. You can. Dressed in Christ. Resting on Christ. Trusting in Christ. Finding all your help and supply in Christ. May God help us then indeed to love like that. Let's pray. Father, thank you. For your holy word, for its searching rebukes, for its encouragement, for its challenge, for its instruction and direction, please help us not to be like those foolish people James describes who look at themselves in the mirror and then forget what they look like. Help us as we gaze into the mirror of your holy word to be hearers and doers of all that you would say for the glory of the name of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.